How's everyone doing today? Yeah. Oh, no, no, that's my teacher. Uh, to the brothers in the back. To the brothers in the back. I'll be starting soon, so uh, could you please take your seats? All right. So surprise, Chef Anes isn't here right now. In fact, he's at a care banquet. And a few days ago, he asked me to give a small talk on some relevant topic that I've been reviewing over the past few, few semesters at law school. So today I wanted to focus on this broad topic of Islamic Sharia and the U.S. Constitution, and specifically how we analyze the U.S. Constitution and how similar it is to how we analyze Islamic Sharia. So if you go on the news right now and you listen to a lot of Fox News, CNN, or even, I don't know, Vox News, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. You'll hear a lot of statements regarding how, oh, Islamic Sharia and the US Constitution, they don't intertwine. They're not compatible with each other. They're not even the same thing. In fact, we should ban Islamic Sharia. But in reality, these people don't know what they're talking about. And in fact, they don't know exactly what is Islamic Sharia. So with that, I wanted to specifically talk about how in we as future legislatures, lawmakers, interpret and read and analyze the U.S. Constitution, analyze the laws, and how in Islamic Sharia we follow a similar but much more eloquent style in which we make it clear for everyone to understand the topic. So, when we analyze the U.S. Constitution, specifically laws in the United States, there are five things we look at, five specific tenets that we have to adhere to in a specific order. Because without doing so, we have no basis for why we create these laws. So the first step that we do is we look at the actual text of the law. If the law says no children allowed, we assume no children allowed. If the law says no phones allowed, we assume no phones allowed. If the law says anything in that text, any word in that text, we state whatever is in that text as the penultimate law. So, while we're doing this, let's have a little fun activity. If you guys look behind me, you see the statement says, turn off your cell phone. How many of you have your cell phones with you? Please raise your hand. Well, great job. Great job. I love the honesty here, despite everyone having their cell phone. Good job. So the statement says right here, turn off your cell phone. So right now, I assume each and every one of you has your cell phone turned off, right? No. No? proud of this person. He, he's a rebel. So what have we learned from this? If the law says turn off your cell phone, but we don't know when, when can we turn off our cell phone? So then we have to go to the next category, and that's called the intent of the law. Why was this law written? What was the purpose behind the word, verbiage used within the law? So specifically, no cell phones allowed. When that person, whoever the militia board at the time that made that statement, what was he thinking when he made that law? Can someone tell me? Thank you. When you're entering salah, when you're entering when people are praying together, you turn off your cell phones at that time period. The statement clearly says, do turn off your cell phone. But specifically when? When you enter salah, when you're about to enter a congregation of salah. But let's be real, not everyone knows that. In fact, as you know today, someone's cell phone had to go off. 
that to let's be fair is probably mine because I forgot to turn it off. So what, what then happens is people don't understand the intent. Okay, they don't know what that person wrote when they saw, when he wrote that rule off. So what do they do? They look at precedent, or rather in some places they look at tradition. So precedent is what we define as what happens in the past. So you get your understanding of the current law by looking at what happened from what other people have done in the past. So in the past, what do you think has happened? Why did, what happened that made this law happen? You again. Exactly. The people's phones were continuously going on or someone was praying and all of a sudden their phone rang like Shakira or something and he didn't turn it off. So this law was implemented for that purpose. <coughs> Ultimately, of course, let's assume that in this scenario, people don't understand that. They don't understand that precedent, that tradition of why we always turn off our cell phones so that we can maintain that peace. Ultimately, we look at the last and final part, policy. Policy is when we look at the general application of the law and try to interpret it in a way that's beneficial for everyone in society. So when we look at the law and says, turn off your cell phones, if someone was to look at it and make a policy argument, they would say that we're doing this so that everyone can have a peace in their salah, so that someone can come in and they can pray without someone else interrupting them with Shakira or Beyonce or anything else that's playing in the background. So, now that I've established the five tenets, let's look at Islamic law, and specifically how it's analyzed. And now I'm not going to go into in-depth analysis of how it's done, but I'm going to give you a general basis of how it's being done. So, when we look at the Quran, we look at the ayat that's being said. We look at what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, and what has been written within the text. But suppose, for instance, that when you're reading one of an ayah in the Quran, it's it's unclear, like the verbiage is very broad. I don't have an example, sadly, right now. So imagine though in this scenario that the verbiage is very broad and you don't know the application of it. What do you think we're going to do next? Based off what we did in the US Constitution, a new hand. A new hand, let's have a different person speak. So in the Quran, suppose in the Quran there was a very broad statement being made, okay? and we don't know the application, how clear it is. We don't know what's clear. So what do we do next? You look at the context, right? So you're looking at the intent of what is being said with that, with that ayah, right? Now suppose then you look, you're looking at that intent. You're looking at how the, what that ayah was specifically referencing, okay? What happens next though is that of course we'll have differences of opinion, right? We'll have some people, some schools of thought say A happened, some schools of thought say B happened, some school says neither A or B, right? So what do you think will happen next? What do you think we're going to do next? Different hand. And I love your enthusiasm. Let's have a different hand though. <laughs> That's later on. But specifically right now, we understood the intent of why this law, of what the ayah or law was being made, but we don't know like how it's being done. So what do we do in that scenario? So we ask the why it's being done, 
We asked why it's being done, but specifically, who do we look to? Ethan, doesn't matter. Exactly. We look at precedent, tradition. We look at how the Prophet utilized that specific ayah, that specific an, an aspect, the action, or any aspect that's being determined at that scenario. We have to look at the past example. Yes. Of course. Correct. Exactly. You're looking at the You're looking at precedent. You're looking at tradition. You're seeing how it has been analyzed in that time period. Specifically, how the Prophet was using that ayah, was using that in his daily life. And then you're looking at the Sunnah, the Hadith, the Tafsir, the Fiqh, all the analysis that's beyond that. We're looking at how that's being used to reinforce his understanding of what that ayah or law was specifically addressing. Ultimately, though, we come to this last point. And this is where we've had issues in today's society. And that's policy. Now, just a reminder, policy is looking at an argument in favor for the benefit of everyone. So suppose that there was a statement or a law, okay? And it specifically targets one group of individuals, okay? What happens? Do we as individuals have to then determine what is important? That is, do we have to say that based on this ayah, this is applicable, that's it? and it only affects these people, and it can disregard the rest, or who do we look to? Who do we exactly look towards in today's society to determine the application of this law? Yeah? Say again? The owner of the mosque? Uh, not the owner of the mosque, sure, but specifically within the Islamic context, in the Quran. Who do we look to? Ultimately, like if when we look, read everything in the past, when we look at all the analysis and we still don't have a clear understanding, who do we look to? That's in the beginning, that's prior. Hmm? That's prior as well in precedent tradition. That's also in precedent tradition. Correct. Exactly. You look at the shields, the scholars, how what the scholarship of today's society says about that. Now, policy itself is very time-based. It's focused on what the majority of scholars or even the minority look at in that present sense. So, six, 200 years after the death of the Prophet there is, a, there is a consensus, there is a compilation of these articles of faith, of these articles of supporting documentation. And in these articles, those scholars did their best. They, not even the best, they went beyond perfect in making sure that there was no fallacy in what they did. Go back, go forward another 200 years, 400 years. Different time periods happen, different societies come about, and different people have a different interpretation of what is being said. So what happens? We then have different policy reasons for why certain things are applicable and why certain things cannot be applicable. And then, of course, move on to today's society, where now there's a movement towards redefining exactly what everything exactly means in the context of Islam and Quran. Or there's a, or another movement where it says, no, we need to look at exactly what is, exa what is happening within the Islamic context and how we can reconcile what was happening in the past with the present tense. 
So ultimately, it leads to this idea, this specific understanding of disagreements, okay? Because let's be real, everyone has disagreements in life. You know, there has never been a time in the Sahaba's lifestyle where everyone agreed on the same thing. I mean, everything, almost everything there was agreement, but only a few things there were disagreements with. So, what does that mean? In, in the US Constitution, specifically, think about it like this. When you're making a law, and people have, one party says, we want cupcakes, and the other party says, no, we want cake. What happens when you have two disagreements? What happens? Okay, we have a fight, of course, but let's make it more kid-friendly. Okay, there's an argument. Thank you. Majority rules. We have an electoral process. That majority will then go back and forth, and then finally, based on majority voting, they decide, okay, that's gonna be law. So, by a show of hands in this scenario, cupcakes, raise your hand for cupcakes. Raise your hand for cakes. Exactly. Majority rule, cake wins. Now let's compare it now. Now here's the, here's the beautiful aspect of it. Let's compare it to the Islamic context, okay? In Islam, we look at not only the minor, we look at not only the majority rule, but we look at the minority rule as well in order to come to a realization of what that majority rule could have been. So example, there's always an argument on, on how someone can pray salah, okay? Rather, one group says, put your hands down. Another group says, you can cross your hands. Of course, majority opinion always has stated that this was, that we should, cross, we should cross our hands. However, a minority view says, no, you can have your hands down. They have their own opinions. They have their own basis, their facts, their reasons coming from a different source. Another opinion, they the majority opinion comes from their source. Ultimately, are the, ultimately, let me ask this question. Is one right and the other wrong? No. Why? They might both be right. Exactly. They might both be right. However, we don't know which is correct because we don't have that that understanding, the scholarship that these individuals, that these shayukh have under have underwent in order to understand it. So this leads to this understanding, this specific idea that I want to stress today, and that is static versus dynamic. So static means that we keep things the same. That is everything's like if something means A, it means A until 3018. And dynamic means if it means A and 2000 in the back then, it means A but has a different context of A. So let me be let me let me be clear here, okay? In the U.S. Constitution, when they defined a person, in the t in 1776 till the pre till 1787, a person specifically in that time period in the Constitution meant a white man with property who believed in God. A white man with property who believed in God. So, assume an Arab came and was, was, was in the court law, okay, in this time period. Do you think an Arab man was a white man who had property, who believed in God, do you think he'd fall in that same definition? No. Why? We're not white. We're not white. Exactly. Why are we not, why are you got, why is that Arabic definition not white? Correct. Specifically, look at that. Exactly. In that time period, if a person was defined as white, he would be from somewhere from Britain, from France, somewhere from the East, from the European nations that would have fit that definition. And then from there, he would consist. He would fall in that definition. He would fall into that category of law. Now let's move forward. Okay, let's make this a little bit more fun. Okay. 
Now suppose, now that slave trade has happened and all these sadly terrible things have happened in society, okay? So if someone from, a bl from black descent comes, okay? Someone from, br um, from brown descent occurs. It does, how would you, what would you argue then should happen to that law? To that law that says that a person, a, a person was a white man, even though there's clearly a black man, a brown man, an Asian man, any other person that wasn't fit, that didn't fit the white category. What do you think should happen? Should be changed. Should be changed. How would you change it? Just the way you you like go about it, like, it, like it, uh, if you don't want to change it specifically, you can just. Sorry, I'm getting technical. No, no, it's fine. Be technical. I don't elaborate. Fourteenth Amendment. Yeah. Fourteen Amendment, sure, you can make an amendment. But specifically, how would you do that, though? How would you go about? The problem with that is that it's very generalized. It doesn't fit into this category that we're trying to argue. What would you do to change this law? Vote. You'd vote. Exactly. You'd go and vote. You'd make your voice occur. You'd make your voice appear. You'd appear and you say, "Look, this law does not is not applicable. It's unjust in our society. We should change it." So you go and voice your opinion. You go say, "I want to change the rule of a person to be any individual that is a human being." Okay? Make it generalized like that. Okay? And guess what? Don't you guys think that's a better idea? That's a better alternative? Yeah. But then, who? Why would you say you guess? What do you mean? No, no, no. Elaborate. Instead of just voting, maybe like change people's minds. Change minds. That's exactly, that's the second part. You can vote. You can make, you can do all these things. You can go and make change happen through your polls. But what's the point when ultimately no one's going to believe it? So how do you do, go about this? You have to go about changing the minds of people. You have to first encourage them, look, the per a person should be any human being. And then from there, you should encourage others, look, view as every, a white man, same as a black man, a brown man, the same as the Asian man, etc., etc. Look at what the Prophet said. He said that there's no difference between an Arab and a non-Arab, except through his deen except in front of Allah. So, what, have we, what can we conclude about this? What can we can like come to a consensus about this? In the US Constitution, when you want to change the hearts and minds of people, you have to go through voting. But to vote, you have to, then, you have to first change the people's opinions to support that idea. When in Islam, it makes it clear what, it is, what is the true statement, that we should first focus on our deen, focus within our hearts. And from there, you can see the differences beyond that. You had a question. I'm sorry. No. Okay. So we're going to keep questions to the end, okay, if possible. So I want to end on this topic with this specific aspect, okay? Do we believe that the Quran is dynamic or do we believe that it's static in definition? That is, do we believe that the Quran changes over time? Or do we believe that the meaning itself changes over time? Or do we believe that it remains the same from the beginning to end? Or, here's a third option, because there's always a third option. It depends. It always stays the same? It's static? It's static, that's, that's what it means, it always stays the same. 
Do you say it's static? It depends. It depends, right? Yeah, it depends. It's because like it, it, it's a, it's a situation. Exactly. It's the way you see it sometimes. Because it's not like it's not it's not always clear. Exactly. Exactly. Precisely. The words change, don't change. The meaning of the Quran remains the same. If the Quran says that alcohol is haram, alcohol is haram, no matter what. But here's the thing. Let's fast forward now, okay? There's a new, there's a new like fermentation process, new drug, okay, or a new drink, okay, and it gives you the same effect as alcohol, but it's not like alcohol. Do you think that fits into the same category as alcohol as described in the Quran? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Correct. It has the same effect. So has the application changed? Has the, has the meaning changed? Yeah. But has the how the, exactly the meaning hasn't changed? But has the application itself, the understanding and application, hasn't that changed? Yes. So precisely. So the Quran by itself, it's a set, it's static in meaning. That is the meaning itself remains the same. It's clear. It's concise. And then we go to the other sources to understand everything. But once you go beyond that, once you live in a different time period, because we don't live in the same time period as the Prophet Islam. You have to make changes. You have to make changes in the sense of the application of that meaning to make sure that it's consistent with what the Prophet ﷺ has said in that time period, what the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said at that time period. Now, of course, we have the second argument though. But I believe that the Quran is dynamic, like in the sense that it's always changing. The meaning always changes. Don't you? Here's the thing. But let's hear this out. Let's talk about this argument a little bit more. The Quran always changes. Does that mean that the Qur'an is somewhat living? Don't you think that the Qur'an is living then in that sense? Someone that is living. Repeat that one more time. Someone that is living. But don't you think though that the Qur'an itself, like, when one lives, they live with the Qur'an, so in a sense the Qur'an itself is living? Figuratively. Figuratively, right? So what... So what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to argue here, what I'm trying to get you guys to understand is that the Qur'an by itself is dynamic in a sense of how you apply it. Some of the meanings will remain the same, but its application will always change. But ultimately, what happens is that people will try to change the whole everything. They will try to say, oh, the Qur'an cannot remain static because if you remain static, you're like the Christian books where they remain the same meaning from, from time in to time out. So by that default, we should always change our Qur'an. We should change our Qur'an. That is an argument, a potential argument someone might make to you. Your response to that is no. The Qur'an's meaning will always change. The Qur'an's, me the Qur'an's meaning will not always change. In fact, the application will change. The meaning is always the same no matter what. But the way you apply it in your life changes. Person A is different from person B. Person B is different from person C. Right? So that is how we argue this kind of understanding. So, inshallah, I wanted to conclude with this small hypo, this really quick hypo, and then I'm not sure. We have pizza today? That's 8.50, so. 8.50, so. I'm going to pick it up at 8.50, so we'll be at 9 o'clock. All right. So, uh, 20 minutes is turn now. So, I want to end with this really fun hypo that I hope you all can understand. And it'll be somewhat, it'll be somewhat engaging, okay? So, let's all, let's all agree on this. Stealing is bad, right? Really bad. Really bad, right? No one should steal, right? Alright, alright, calm down. Alright, let's go, alright, calm down, calm down a little bit, okay? Put your hand down right now, okay? Alright. Look here. Look here. Turn around. Turn around. It's okay, don't. No. Turn around. So, 
this is what I want to get at, okay? Stealing is bad, right? Uh-huh. But what happens then, so here's the scenario. A man is stealing, but he's trying to feed his family. Okay, someone, he's very poor. He has nothing else. No one's providing for him. No one can help him. No, like, no matter what he's done, he cannot get food. Is it okay for him to steal? Yes. No. Yes. No. No. Yes. No. Yes. One says yes, one says no. Yes. What do you say? Yes. Yes. He should do whatever he can to protect his family and that kind of thing. But he shouldn't go about saying, this is a solution. I need to steal from now on. Like, if in the moment he's starving death and there's no other way, then you've got to do it. But he has to understand that it's still wrong. It just... It's like a lesser wrong what yeah. Precisely. That is exactly it. So what I'm trying to get you guys to understand is that specifically for me in law school, nothing is yes or no. Nothing in life is yes or no except when specifically stated in the Quran, okay? In the, in the Sahab, well, what is said in our religion is yes or no. What you need to realize is that everything changes based on the facts. The, based on circumstances, everything changes. Can you hear me now? Okay, so what I want to get you guys to understand is that everything changes based on the facts, okay? So if something, if you have, if we all agree stealing is bad, but if someone is trying to steal for the sake of his family because there's no alternative, and he comes to a realize, you need to realize that this person cannot use that as a basis to steal for the rest of his life. Because what happens? Remember when I made that argument about policy? about how when you make a policy argument, it's meant for the benefit of society. Now suppose that one man steals. He says, I, I have to feed my family. I have to steal. What about person B? Oh, this person, he's stealing. Shouldn't I be stealing as well? Shouldn't, shouldn't I continue? Because I need to feed myself, I'm hungry. Then the next person, oh, this person he's stealing for the sake of himself or to feed family. I want to steal some bad stuff, you know, because I want to feel, I want to feel that I feel bad inside. You see how the, see how it goes tumbling down and down and down? So, what am I trying to get you guys to understand? Is that when you are going, when you are trying to understand the certain circumstances in which a law or a statement is made, you need to realize that based on the facts, it has, it can change. In the time of Omar Radulanhu, there was a, there was a famine happening, and there was a man he had no option left. He had no other thing available to him. And he started stealing from the food depository, the treasury. What do you think happened? Do you think Omar Radulahu, when he caught him, do you think he punished him? No. Yes. No. One says no, one said yes. Yes. No. No. Yes. no. Why? Why no? Someone tell me, give me an answer for no. Um, because, so he's poor, but it, he might punish him because it's oh. so bad and haram for stealing. But he might not because he's poor and doesn't have food or anything. Like and, like if he asks already for people, for people they said no. He he, he might have, have have not punished him. But if he really did have like asking for him, they said yes, and he did have money. He he's like punishing. But if he didn't have money and asked a lot of people and they said no, he he might not punish him. So it's based on so based on his circumstance, he's pen, he may or may not punish him, right? Mm-hmm. That was you were saying yes, he would punish him, right? And no. And no. Okay. So give me another, give me one other argument. Someone else, give me your point. So I think that like it's okay if the, if the person is in somehow is supporting society, like like if the per, if the person is like super important and he's helping out everybody around him, and he is like dying, he needs to have food, obviously like. 
if you provide it with, with food, then how about everybody else? Exactly. Yeah, of course. If you pro help, you help that person. But you're not. But then, based on that conclusion, though, do you think though it was okay that would Omar Radiallahu punish that man? Would he punish him based on the fact that there's a famine happening and he stole from the food treasury? That was the original question. Do you think he would punish him? No. 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 Why? Because Allah will be the one who I mean, of course. I mean, of course. But specifically, I want to look at another. Let me get, get one more answer in the back. He needs food for his family, right? So. So the correct answer is yes, uh, sorry, no. Omar did not punish this man. Instead, he let him go. But there's a specific, a specific reason. Can anyone, if you were paying attention, could anyone remind one of the reasons why he did not punish, even though the text says that he had to punish anyone who steals? The intent was so that no one stole. The precedent was because we did it in the past. The tradition is because people do it all the time. But why did Omar punish this man? Why? The context of the situation, but specifically why? Like, what context? What was he trying to do in that scenario? That he was trying to uh, steal for his family? Yeah, what was, he trying to, what was Omar trying to prove, show to society? And specifically show a precedent within Islamic law? Oh, because oh, it's um, like a famine isn't, it's like an, like, kind of like an unnatural thing. Exactly. A famine is an unnatural thing. A famine is, so, for those of you who don't know, a famine is when there's a lack of food in the area, okay? Like, there's no food and there's a starvation happening. And so, Omar did not punish this man, because if he was to punish this man for starving, for trying to feed his family, that means he has to punish 40 other people, 50 other people, who are in the same circumstance as this man because they are desperate. They are trying to survive. So, Omar was making a statement here. A stand that based on circumstance, you have you can apply the law. The law is not black and white. You do this, you do that, you do this, that. No, the law changes based on the circumstances that are present within society. And so Umar let that man go. And, and alhamdulillah, and a few years later, there was the famine died. But of course, what happened afterwards that famine? That law still remained. The punishment of stealing. Omar was showing, is showing here, like Omar showed here based on his reasons, based on his actions, that stealing is not proper. Like one cannot steal, even for the sake of survival. Like yes, they can steal, but based on circumstance, he would let him go. At the same time, he's showing that just because one person steals, that does not make it right for everyone else. And that we as a community, we as a society need to help that individual so that he does not end up in that situation again. So, in conclusion, the laws of our society and the law in Islamic Sharia, they follow a similar analysis. They follow a similar understanding of how we understand and interpret Islam and, and interpret the laws of society and interpret the laws. But specifically, we have to make a judgment call of what is dynamic and what is static. Do we continue living with static laws from 1700s to 1800s? Or do we continue applying them in a way that benefits society as a whole, that benefits the current society that we're living in? In the same vein, do we continue, we, should we continue with what the Prophet and the Sahaba and of the time period, what they did? Should we continue that? Yes, of course we need to continue that. But how do we continue the application of it? Do we follow the same application? 
that they did. We do. We try our best. But of course, new circumstances come about where we need to make an, a new understanding in order to apply it. So inshallah, that's all I have for today. I hope it was... Was it okay? It was good? Thank you. So, if anyone has any questions, I'll take a few questions, but I just want to let you all know something specifically. I'm not a scholar in this field, I'm just a law student, so I'm still learning the things as I go. And I want you all to come to this realization that as time goes on, when you want to make a career path, if your fathers or mothers say, Oh, you have to be a doctor, you have to be a lawyer, you have to be a businessman, or you have to be a doctor, you have to be a businessman, you have to be uh, an engineer. Just tell them that there's always a law option, that there's something else that can benefit society as a whole. So inshallah, I hope you all learned something from this. I hope you learned the five precedents that I've established, and I hope you can use that in your benefit. I hope you can apply that, inshallah, when you do your own analysis. Jazakumullah khairan. So, let's have some questions. Can't you say that like, um, the application is important? Okay, so guys, guys, we're not done yet. I have three minutes. Three minutes, inshallah, and then we can get pizza, okay? Okay, guys, shh. Okay. So, hey. Okay, so you said that the application is important and throughout time, like, it, it's changed, right? Personally, like, can't, like, can't you say it, like, same thing has to happen. I mean, not has to. It's like, sorry, I don't want to get too political. You're fine. No, you're fine. Go for it. Okay. And I'll answer. And I'll answer it. Shouldn't we also apply the Constitution differently throughout time too, because things change? So the question is, shouldn't we apply the Constitution differently as time changes? So that's actually a really good question. And here's the thing that's been happening in law, in the legal field, especially in law school. We're having an argument between whether, whether or not we look at the U.S. Constitution as the same as 1700, or we have to, or we can apply differently. Because here's the thing, a lot of justices, the Supreme Court justices, they make laws. They like to interpret, they interpret laws. And so they make the argument that says, we need to, like some would say that we should change the laws based on the time period, because certain applications don't work anymore. Others say, no. Stick to, the, stick to the actual text. It says, no, it says a person has to be this kind of person. It's a person, right? So this is the kind of thing that is still going on nowadays. We're still having this argument. We're still trying to come to a solution. 